The reading comes this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, reading verses 1 to 13. And now I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Well, I'm you got me, because haven't got a car, um, but we're continuing in this um, series, Welcome to 13, you've got to. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your eternal and unchanging word, especially on today, Bible Sunday. We thank you that you cause all scripture to be written, that we may be built up in our most holy faith. So, Father, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to cause your words to live again in us today and enable us to receive them and respond to them and be made the people you want us to be because your word will not return to you empty. Amen. Well, this is the single Bible passage most often used at weddings and you can readily see why, can't you? When it comes up, uh, my standard wedding sermon is to teach that if this marriage that we're talking about is to be fully working as it's designed by God to be, then we ought to be able to insert into verses 4 to 8a the names of each of the couple wherever it says love. So, Peter is patient. Davina is kind. Peter does not envy. Davina doesn't boast, etc. etc. Uh, then we should be able to go through it again with the names all the other way. Davina's patient. Peter's kind. So it goes on. Peter is not self-seeking. Well, passing on, Davina is not easily angered, etc., etc. Now, there's just one problem about this. 
No one can do it. Not consistently. We simply can't live to that standard. We want to see a perfect marriage. But we have to recognise that we're building with imperfect materials, all absurd and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one name that fits this passage wholly and completely. Jesus. Jesus does not dishonour others. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Or perhaps a better translation, as in the Revised Standard Version, Jesus is not resentful or doesn't brood over bad things that happen. Quite easy for us not to be able to say that, brooding over bad things that happen. On the contrary, Jesus always protects, literally it covers over everything. That's a brilliant description of what his death on the cross does. Jesus always trusts, always hopes, always endures. The temptation of studying a passage like this is to rush into application. Well, I'd better try to be more loving, more patient, more kind, less proud, such and such, which is all very well under noble ambition. You won't really manage it, not by yourself. Indeed, if you try to do it by yourself, not only will you fail, but you will actually damage your walk with the Lord. In the same way, all those lovely gifts that Paul has been talking about are all very well, and we are supposed to earnestly desire them. But if we try to exercise them in our own right, because it makes us feel appreciated, necessary, or important, or anything, well then we are damaging the work of the Kingdom of God. We're just so many noisy gongs drawing attention to ourselves. We might even be, maybe, tremendously effective, giving prophecies, working miracles, all sorts of glorious things. But in spiritual terms, we're really just nothing. Gaining nothing, profiting other people. Nothing, in the end. In reality, in eternity. I remember a Christian leader, and I've seen this quite often, in fact, and indeed, I have to confess I recognise the temptation in myself, who arranged a meeting of some sort and then felt personally hurt and indignant because people hadn't turned up in sufficient numbers. He felt people owed it to him to attend so that he wasn't disappointed. Now, in those circumstances, whose agenda are we actually serving? Yet don't we all have mixed motives most of the time, even when, perhaps especially when, we're permitting to serve God? Better not to have a gift at all than to use it for puffing oneself up. Did you know, I blush to confess, that the word hierarchy literally means ruled by priests? Proud prelates jostling for position becomes a truism. We soon need to check ourselves all the time. Why am I doing this? What's going on in here? Am I really just concerned with the glory of God, or is the glory of Peter actually somewhere in there in the mix as well? Do you remember that verse from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's a dangerous thing to exercise more ministry than is truly underpinned by genuine spiritual maturity. Did you watch Frozen Planet 2? Well, it's like a frozen iceberg, which is about to topple over and sink everything round. If there is more on the top showing than there is underneath, then it's unstable and it's dangerous to everybody. Contrary to much modern teaching, 
Nothing about Christianity, including spiritual gifts, is given to us to promote a sense of self-realization. I remember a young man who seemed to treat the spiritual gifts as so many Boy Scout badges. He once said to me, have you got miracles yet? I've got tongues, prophecy, interpretation, but not apparently wisdom. <laughs> the Corinthian church was wildly keen, but desperately immature. And Paul has been distressed by the divisions he's heard about in it. He says as much in chapter 11, verse 18. So in this whole section, he has been stressing how, though he's delighted by their enthusiasm, he longs to see the unity of love in them. Thus, in chapter 12, his primary emphasis is not, in fact, on the various gifts as such, but on the requirement that whatever ministry you may have, the most important thing is the unity of the body. So chapter 12, verse 25 says, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And again in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honoured, all rejoice together. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, that's collectively and individually members of it. We get a problem in the West with our huge emphasis on the individual. Yes, we are individually loved, but as the BCP Communion Service puts it, we are first and foremost very members incorporate in the mystical body of Christ. And they knew how to put things in this, didn't they? You are very members incorporate in the mystical body of Christ. That's where you start. Then the individual comes out from that. Corporate solidarity is of the essence of Christianity. So this passage, which looks at first blush rather heartwarming and suitable for a young couple just setting out on their life together, is actually rather challenging. We're back with Jesus' first sustained teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, yes, Jesus, but I can't be. Well, might we say with many of his disciples in John 6, verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Genuine love can't be cranked up. Oh, yes, we can act loving. We can behave lovingly. We can give all we possess to the poor. It's amazing what a sense of duty can drive us to, or a sense of shame. But that's not the same as the agape love of which Paul is speaking here. So, if we can't live to the standard requirements, what then? Do we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's a good girl to aim at, and then we know we'll fall short? Or do we despair that we'll never be good enough? Well, neither of these. We go back to another key verse. 1 John 4, verse 16. God is love. Ah, now that's different. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. Now, tell me, where does God live? Where is he at this moment? Isaiah 57 verse 14, I dwell in the high and holy place 
and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God is living right now by his Holy Spirit in you, if you're a Christian. Now that is just wonderful. You may not be able to love as this passage calls for, but the one who lives in you not only can, but does. All the attributes that may characterize your life will one day fade away. Prophesying the name of God, praying in ecstatic languages, amazing supernatural insight and knowledge, these things shall pass. The one enduring reality of the universe is the love of God. That is eternity. And it's in your heart right now. Have you ever had that little thought in relation to somebody you find really difficult, that if you were to be nice to them, that would be hypocritical? I have. I mean, I do quite often, really. I think, oh, I really can't. Oh, no. And then the little voice says, you know, but you should be nice to them. I think, oh, yes, yeah, but, but that would be hypocritical, so they'd actually like them. They're not the only one. <laughs> now, that is a real mark from the enemy. Because although at a merely human level you dislike them, God in you loves them. And the deepest reality in your inner being is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So at the deepest, deepest, deepest level of yourself, there is love welling up for these types of people. God is loving other people through you already, even the most tiresome. You aren't being required to whip up some impressive level of self-sacrifice by dredging about in your heart. All you have to do is make room for him to do that more and more. 1 Peter 1 verse 22 reads, Having purified yourselves by obedience to the truth, to a sincere love of brethren, love each other intensely from your heart. It's because you've submitted yourself to the truth of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus that that has purified your soul. He's done all that's necessary, so just press in closer to him, and you'll find his love pouring in and through you increasingly towards other people, including and especially the people who you object to. What you have to do is recognise that process and then choose with your will to cooperate with it. It's only spiritual immaturity that, on the one hand, resists loving other people, or, on the other hand, causes us to beat ourselves up to try to love people we frankly dislike. But maturity, according to Ephesians 4 verse 13, is when we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. It's time for us to grow up so that Christ in us can be fully visible and active in and through our lives, both individually and corporately. We can learn to recognise our own immaturity and make choices to turn away from it. Yes, our understanding of this is yet rather cloudy, but Jesus in us already knows us fully, through and through, better than we know ourselves. Our heavenly eternal status is that we will eventually see him fully face to face. Today's spirit may be a bit indistinct, but
that you and I have the secret calling and equipping to be the mirror. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we all with unveiled face reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. So the light shines bursting into your inner being and bursts out again to everybody all around. In the Lord's Prayer we ask him literally to give us this day tomorrow's bread. Claim that bread of heaven. Lay hold of mature understanding. It's yours today for the asking. Faith is glorious. Hope in God's provision is wonderful. But both of these are attributes from you directed towards God. Faith in God, hope in God. Love is nothing less than God Almighty himself pouring out through you for all eternity. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God of love, how wonderful you are. Oh Lord, we see your love translated into human form in the person of your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming for us, for living for us, for dying for us, for breaking through death for us, for rising to heaven for us, for interceding now for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you take that love of God and apply it in our hearts. Oh Lord, there is so much in us that is blocking the flow of your love in us and through us. And we're so sorry for that. We ask you, Lord, to scour us out by just pouring so powerfully your love into our being that it just sweeps away all the gunk, gets rid of all the rubbish. But then what comes out in our dealings with other people is love. The love of Jesus. Have your full, unfettered, perfect way in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.